trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. This is one of those programs where we gather to revel in wrong think. I'm going to take a few moments here at the beginning of the show to just explain what that means. Because it may sound really subversive or maybe even antisocial. But you need to understand that my approach to finding and adhering to the truth is not dependent on, well, which party is saying this or what agenda am I, am I trying to promote the, the agenda that I'm trying to promote, if there is such an agenda, is I'm trying to brainwash you into thinking for yourself. That means I, I'm more interested in in trying to attract people who want to think about what they're hearing, think about what they're reading, than people who simply want to be told, here's what you need to think about a given issue. One thing that I want you to pay close attention to, I, I will talk about issues and, and you know situations, challenges that uh, will make you uncomfortable. And, and that my goal isn't just because, you know, I like to inflict discomfort on people. It's, it's a matter of there are some things that really need to be faced. But I'm going to ask you, pay close attention. Because I try to do this in a way that's not enemy-driven. In other words, I, I try to approach it from a more principled, let's be aware of what's going on, but let's also be aware of what we can do in terms of uh, mitigating the impact of whatever the problem at hand is on our own lives. Now, if that sounds touchy-feely to you, I want you to understand. I have been through that whole process of being an enemy-driven commentator and giving my audience demons to wrestle with. And the truth of the matter is, that's a very successful, very proven formula for growing a large, loyal audience. Maybe you'll think I'm weird when I tell you this, but numbers really don't uh, concern me. I don't care how big my audience is. I don't know how big my audience is. What I do know is that there are people out there, and it may be just a handful of individuals, for whom the truth matters more than just about anything else, more than their personal comfort, more than their need to be validated. They just want to know, what is reality? And to the best of my ability, I try to provide them with information and resources to to challenge the narratives that are being beamed at us 24-7 that are intended to keep us detached from reality. So with that in mind, if I haven't scared you off yet, let's dive right in and let's get started. I've got some really important stuff to share with you today. Our program is brought to you by great sponsors like my friends at LifesavingFood.com, also from HSL Ammo, SewingAndQuiltingCenter.com. By the way, HSL Ammo has their website too. It's HSLAmmo.com, MonticelloCollege.org, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, and GovernYourCrypto.com. So I thought we could start today... Talking about a subject, I've been banging the drum on this for a while, but but I really, I feel an urgency, and this is the only reason why I bring this up, and that is, I think we need to be looking very closely at our personal, as well as community, self-sufficiency. So start with yourself, start with your own home, get yourself in order, but let's look at ways we can be more self-sufficient. And to, to illustrate why this is so important, I want to share with you a commentary from J.B. Shirk. This is published on... AmericanThinker.com. And he explains how regional self-sufficiency is the key to keeping the peace 
in our time. I mean, if you're kind of a history buff, you may remember that, you know, the powers that be spent an awful lot of time and effort after World War II creating global interdependence. And we're starting to feel what happens when that global interdependence becomes so closely linked that, uh, well, shutting off the flow of energy from this particular country will impact numerous other places, numerous other industries. And and I'm just going to put my cards on the table here and tell you the biggest concern I have is not so much the high gas prices, which we're all experiencing. I have a much deeper concern about the possibility of food and famine being an issue worldwide, including here. And right now we live in a time where you can still go into the grocery store and there is plenty to choose from. There's still time to get yourself squared away and become more self-sufficient. But it's not something that can be easily ignored. So let's, let's dive right in. J.B. Shirks says, nearly 80 years ago, after the conclusion of hostilities in World War II, Western powers are galloping toward another global conflict. Now, if preparation is half of any battle, though, the West has made its enemies strong at its own expense. He says, ever-growing international institutions created in lieu of robust representative institutions at home have weakened nation-states and local self-determination. A globalist economic system directed by a small number of multinational corporations, financial titans, and central banks has put liberal democracies at the mercy of tyrants and local communities at the mercy of faraway supply chains. The very post-World War II systems designed to prevent a third world war or a third global war have now created the conditions for making such a war exceedingly painful. And he brings to mind the 1984 British movie Threads, which terrified an entire Cold War generation by realistically portraying the aftermath of a nuclear war between the Soviet Union and NATO countries. In its memorable opening monologue regarding the tenuous threads holding civilization together, the narrator intones, In an urban society, everything connects. Each person's needs are fed by the skills of many others. Our our lives are woven together in a fabric, but the connections that make society strong also make it vulnerable. Now, J.B. Shirk says four decades later, those words have never been more true. Aging military alliances, the rise of international wholesale monopolies, and the concomitant decline of localized production and manufacturing, supply chain, intercontinental transport, and transcontinental delivery schedules that depend on breathtakingly complex logistics have only made the threads that hold society together more multifarious and fine. Globalism has shifted farming, industry, and trade so far away from local communities that their survival depends on the efforts of geopolitical enemies. Even small hiccups to the system, natural weather events or labor strikes, can cause product shortages and price spikes across the world. He says large uh, perturbations to the system, such as the imposition of Green New Deal regulations or the last two years of COVID lockdowns, wasteful government spending and economic mandates immediately trigger runaway inflation as we see today. Now, what happens when the most important natural resources on the planet disappear from global supply chains overnight, with few alternative replacements available until local mining, farming, and manufacturing can fill those voids? He says the world is racked with years of food, medical, and energy shortages that will ravage populations as viciously as the bullets or bombs of any war. Here's the crazy part, though. Nothing about our current situation was unforeseeable. 
Three decades after the collapse of the Soviet Union, the Russian Federation is pushing back against the ever-expanding territorial coverage of NATO, a military alliance seemingly intent on encircling Russia's borders, even though it repeatedly assured Russian leaders in the 90s it would not do so. Two decades after President Bill Clinton aggressively campaigned to establish permanent normal trade relations with China and to welcome the communist nation into the World Trade Organization, China has returned the favor by engaging in rampant intellectual property theft, industrial espionage, and commodity price manipulation. Profiting simultaneously from its inclusion in the West's manufacturing dominance and explosive economic growth have catapulted it from third world country to an emerging superpower with substantial supply chain leverage throughout the globe. Nearly a decade after President Barack Obama chased peace for our time by flooding Iran with billions of dollars in cash in exchange for rhetorical promises from the world's largest state sponsor of terrorism that it would refrain from developing a nuclear arsenal, Iran is once again on the cusp of using the new Biden administration financial lifelines to cement its power over the Middle East and expand its influence as far away as Venezuela. Russia, China, and Iran have become predictably bellicose, and the United States and its Western partners have failed to keep the peace. Now, he says, after first invading Ukraine in 2014 and taking the Crimean Peninsula for its troubles, Russia is back to assert control over the whole country, or at least to prevent NATO from asserting its control over the whole country. China, no doubt, watching how the United States and its NATO allies respond to Russia's incursion into a NATO-friendly but non-allied state, has steadily ratcheted up its own military incursions into Taiwan's airspace and territorial waters. Iran, the wined and dined by the Obama administration and the Biden administration and European leaders interested in the Islamic Republic's enormous oil and natural gas reserves and the marketplace for lucrative trade, has been relentless in its calls for the annihilation of Israel's government. Now, as one of the leading exporters of grain, he says Ukraine is known as the breadbasket of Europe. Together, Russia and Ukraine supply so much of the the planet's grain and fertilizer that some agricultural experts believe that the regional war is already certain to create a global food crisis that will be catastrophic for poorer nations. See, this this is why I'm paying close attention. I know, it's over there. It's not really affecting us. But the key word is yet. Plus, you've got uh, Taiwanese semiconductor plants and Chinese mining operations essential to the production of complex technologies utilized by companies and consumers around the world. Are you starting to see how this connects? We'll hit the brakes for a moment. We'll be back right after these messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Sharing an article here from J.B. Shirk. I do have a link to this in the show notes, which you can find at thebrianheidshow.com. In fact, while you're on the show notes page, look down there at the bottom. See that big uh, part that says subscribe? Drop me your email, and I will send you my show notes every single day that I do this program. I'll put it right there in your email inbox. So back to Mr. Shirk's article here talking about how regional self-sufficiency is the key to keeping the peace. You notice how so much of the conflict right now that uh, that is being focused on is is in Russia and Ukraine or at least it's in Ukraine. I don't think uh, I don't think Russia has lost any land just yet, but 
it's affecting a lot of people outside of those two countries. And the potential for affecting even more people, particularly you and me, is very great. For example, one of the things that J.B. Shirk points out is that Israel is among the globe's most important technological innovators in a number of different fields, from medicine to water desalinization. War within these strategically area, important areas of operation will affect not just them, but the whole program, or the whole planet, rather. And the Biden administration's decision to counter Russia's strategic energy dominance by banning Russian supplies while pursuing potential oil deals with Venezuelan dictator Nicolas Maduro and oil and natural gas products with Iranian dictator Ali Khamenei, both allies of Russia and Putin, just adds further fragility to an already vulnerable global system built on and sustained by vast amounts of hydrocarbon energy. So, spiting a Russian despot by jumping into bed with Iranian and Venezuelan despots who routinely wish death to America, that's hardly a sophisticated national security policy. Depending on dictators for global economic stability instead of achieving and maintaining energy independence for the United States and its allies, as President Trump did a short time ago, well, that's a self-inflicted Western immolation. Attempting to use spiking gas prices and fuel costs to push for a global transition to wind and solar energies sets the West on a guaranteed path toward famine and death. And by the way, he has some great links within this article to back up each of these claims. This is not just, you know, rhetoric he's pulling out of thin air. J.B. Shirk says, and while Western leaders grasp foolishly at at chimerical green dreams and illusory peace, expansion of Russian, Chinese, and Iranian hydrocarbon dominance only strengthens their futures at the West's expense. Now, he says, because of the international institutions created after World War II, because they sought to stabilize global order at the expense of regional self-sufficiency, it has never been easier for a small number of bad actors to turn that global order on its head. People will die because they depend upon the grains of Ukraine and Russia, the hydrocarbons of Russia and Iran, and the input components manufactured by China and Taiwan. They will die even if military conflict rages a continent away because the 21st century's economic system has never been more fragile. They will intimately understand what world war feels like even if they're fortunate enough to avoid the sights, sounds, and smells of battle. An interconnected, interdependent, and leveraged global order means one harsh truth. The rending of a single strategic thread can unravel the whole system. And so he says, let this dangerous moment in human history become a clarifying lesson Only regional self-sufficiency, not great resets or new world orders, can limit war and help keep the peace. Now, this is kind of the big picture, but I want to share that with you in the hopes of sparking some of your thoughts on what can we do to become more self-sufficient. Look, the thought of food scarcity is is too much for, for most of us to even consider, right? It's just that that's a scary thing. The thought of seeing my kids or my grandkids hungry, ooh, not something I want to even, you know, entertain the thought of. But my point is, it's time, it's time to start thinking in terms of, okay, well, what can I do? Now, you may not be able to solve, you know, this global interdependency so much, but there's certainly something you can do to better your own situation. Just off the top of my head, minimizing debt, if not eliminating it completely. Producing more of your own food? Do you have edible landscape in your yard? Do you have a garden? Do you have a place you could even sprout 
greens to grow living, you know, nutrition. Have you thought about keeping chickens, if that's something that you can, can do, or other small livestock? Maybe you need to partner up with the neighbors. Go in on a cow, a milk cow. You'd be surprised what a little teamwork can accomplish. In fact, I want to follow this up with an article from John Clark. Food, famine, and fear. Beware the great agricultural reset. And, and I got to tell you, the gist of this is none of this is by accident. I don't think this is just a matter of, well, somehow it just spiraled out of control and we don't have any idea. I think a lot of the difficulties that we are beginning to see and that we are about to see are the result of like a, I don't know how to put it a nice way. Just it's a, it's a controlled demolition of the existing order. And when people are hungry or when they're uncertain of where their food is going to come from, what do you think that does in terms of making them more malleable to the demands of the systems or the individuals who want to rule them? John Clark says Americans awakening to the Orwellian rule of Joe Biden and his crew of thieves have noticed that the perpetual lying is designed to inculcate pliancy through fear. That's why when the COVID-19 hysteria began to wane, Big Brother Biden switched the gears to the Ukraine crisis. And intriguingly, both crises have been caused by the government Biden heads. COVID-19 was crafted in Wuhan, and the Obama administration set the scene for making Ukraine America's pawn in the current conflict. So conning Americans with one fear lie to eclipse the, eclipse the privy, previous, rather, the biggest lie is yet to come. It's called Build Back Better, and it will unleash a greater terror than any virus or war. And that is nationwide famine. Now, I know. I wanted to dismiss it, too. I don't want to believe that either. But he says, look, this dire warning is constructed not on fantasy, but on fact. As many watchful Americans have noticed during COVID-19, the nation's grocery stores are not guaranteed to be chock full forever. The threats to America's industrial food supplies are numerous and growing and compounded exponentially by escalating inflation. And whether Biden blames food scarcity on COVID-19 or Putin or Donald Trump, the grumbling bellies of children will be indifferent. Now, wise agricultural voices, unheeded by the zealotry of AOC, have warned for decades that industrial agriculture is unsustainable. But most Americans conflate that term with the push for organics or GMO-free labeling. Well, the two are related, but the threats to food safety and security are far greater than those issues suggest. And he gets pretty blunt here. America is rapidly moving toward the collapse of its entire food production system, now aggravated by uncontrolled inflation. And since the conflict in Ukraine has very little to do with the underlying causes of U.S. inflation, if it ended tomorrow, American grocery bills would still rise steadily. Decades of increasing centralization of food production have created an unprecedented threat to Americans and humanity. And utter dependence on fossil fuels for cheap food. Now, that's not just for diesel fuel for tractors to plow and harvest, but fertilizers manufactured from natural gas and limited natural resources. Forget about the petrodollar. It's time to comprehend the wheat dollar. As input costs rise, food prices will skyrocket, most especially in factory grain-dependent confined animal feed operations, or CAFOs. Now, he's not arguing to ban all industrial food production, but he says it's folly to become wholly dependent on a system that yields short-term produce but long-term economic collapse. So think about food security. That's going to be the future battleground in America. 
Government will certainly say, oh, relax, people. We'll take care of you in this time of need. But you got to remember what Henry Kissinger said. Control the oil, control the nations, control the food, control the people. So Creepy Joe points to everybody else as the causes of the problems he sees, whether war, inflation, or Hunter's laptop. But the unfolding food insecurity and shrunken incomes of the 21st century will not be easily laid at the feet of the Donald. That, that, that trump card is worn very thin. So increasingly, local food autonomy is the antidote to corporate dependency. Watch Biden and AOC attempt to expand central power and domination as part of their great green reset. But remember, it's not about food or the environment whatsoever. It's a coup against the American creed to impose totalitarian rule by these self-proclaimed elites. Because freedom is not free, and neither is food. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Let me take a moment here to thank lifesavingfood.com for being one of my sponsors. Now, I know you just spent the last couple of segments talking about food scarcity and impending famine. And I I get it. Gee, are you just trying to sensationalize this? Believe it or not, I'm not. I'm just trying to I'm trying to sound a voice of warning and I'm trying to do it without inciting a sense of panic or a sense of uh, even just unrest in people's hearts. But please hear what I'm about to say. You have time to do something about this. You have time to fortify your position, however you stand right now. And lifesavingfood.com is one of the ways that you can do this. It's, this is 25-year shelf life food storage. You store it in a cool place and you are good to go for 25 years. And whether you need to start on a you know complete supply, well, they've got them. Or if you just need to add to your existing supply, this is a great place to start. Look, they even have gluten-free options if you have someone who is gluten intolerant in your household. Click on the link I provide in my sponsor links. You'll find them in my show notes at thebrianhideshow.com. All right, let's let's talk about the upcoming elections. Now, I don't spend a lot of time on politics because I don't like to let politicians live in my head. And the more time you spend obsessing over, well, what's this politician doing and who's being confirmed to the Supreme Court, the more you are giving them rent-free space in your brain. Now, that doesn't mean we don't have to, we, we can't be aware, but you understand there's a difference between awareness and obsession? Okay, I, I'm not sure where that line is, and maybe it differs from person to person. But, you know, the upcoming elections were looking more and more like a really richly deserved day of reckoning for Democrats and, and the lockdowners who supported them. But now, as Jordan Schachtel puts it, 2022 has actually become the preventing World War III election. He says the 2022 elections are about preventing World War III and giving a chance to the next generation to reverse the failures of our current American regime. Schachtel says the Russian invasion of Ukraine has forced us once more to entertain the possibility of global nuclear warfare because so many of our elected politicians are happy to endorse the failed and foolhardy ideas of the last two decades. With primary elections right around the corner, Americans can use this midterm season as an opportunity to chip away at the uniparty establishment in D.C. Now, Ukraine mania has revealed that countless elected American politicians remain beyond reckless in the foreign policy realm. 
having failed to learn any lessons from our many foreign policy debacles of the the post-9-11 era. They're doubling, tripling, and quadrupling down on the failed ideologies that have resulted in the ruin of nations and the deaths of millions. And this time, the stakes are the highest they've ever been. I mean, it's one thing to bomb Libya into a failed state. But it's a whole different animal to set the same goal for Moscow, which has thousands of nuclear weapons at its disposal. Jordan Schachtel says it's beyond troubling to see so many legislators dust off the regime change playbook and excitedly endorse the idea of a no-fly zone against Russia, which would involve two or more nuclear-armed powers directly squaring off in armed conflict. The politicians in Washington, D.C. remain hell-bent on not only destroying America from within, but they seem committed to increasing the chances for an incredible human catastrophe, which would, of course, rob Americans of the potential for a brighter future. He says, we know that our republic can't be fixed from inside of the beltway, but it can certainly be destroyed from within it. The people in charge right now seem committed to robbing future generations of their potential to thrive. That's why it's so important to do everything we can to defang the D.C. establishment before they commit us to even more chaos and ruin. Now, in these upcoming elections, it makes sense to prioritize more than anything else electing leaders that will both chip away at the ranks of the unhinged warmongers and redirect power away from Washington, D.C. Senate candidates J.D. Vance and Blake Masters and congressional candidates Joe Kent and Robbie Starbuck are model examples of what these politicians look like. On the gubernatorial level, that means electing or re-electing governors like Ron DeSantis. The Florida governor has notably refused to be drawn into the Russia-Ukraine narratives, which does not at all concern the lives and liberties of Floridians. And he remains completely committed to promoting individual liberty and untangling the state from Washington, D.C. Now, Jordan Schachtel says we can heed the wisdom of George Washington in his farewell address. Quote, It is our true policy to steer clear of permanent alliances with any portion of the foreign world. So far, I mean, as we are now at liberty to do it. For let me not be understood as capable of patronizing infidelity to existing entanglements, or engagements, rather. Sorry. (laughs) Bad slip there. Washington said, I hold the maxim no less applicable to public than to private affairs that honesty is always the best policy. I repeat it, therefore. Let those engagements be observed in their genuine sense, but... In my opinion, it is unnecessary and would be unwise to extend them. So politicians should adopt Washington's call to avoid attachments and entanglements in foreign affairs while committing to the further decentralization of America, which gives us a fighting chance to reverse the trend. The foremost threat to America is not located 5,000 miles away in Moscow. The greatest threat to our future is already inside the wire, and it's currently running the show in Washington, D.C., 2022 has become the preventing World War III election. Think about that. The Amer- and Americans can increase the chances for peace and prosperity by sending people to Congress who will reduce the ranks of our power-drunk, hubris-fueled, and more dangerous-than-ever ruling class. Now, I don't know if that makes sense to you or not. I don't know if it's something that, uh, that you can buy into. But as long as you're considering at least the possibility, let me lob another truth bomb in your direction. What you do with this is up to you. Picked up a a thread on Twitter yesterday from Michael O'Fallon, Sovereign Nations. And he has a pretty dire warning. He says the chaos that is about to be unleashed is unlike anything the world has ever seen before. 
He says the technocrats that had an incremental change in store for all of us, but the Canadian trucker protests and massive protests all over the world against those mandates frightened those who planned this disrupting and dismantling of our world. Not to mention it's become common knowledge who was behind this attack on humanity, that being the World Economic Forum. Now, he says, personally, I've been relieved that many now understand what the World Economic, Economic Forum and Open Society have been doing for the last 30 years. But he warns, this frightened them. For the first time, the World Economic Forum was commonly understood as the enemy of humanity. And so, in his opinion, what was going to be incremental is now going to be a blitzkrieg. And while they did everything to protect Hunter Biden, he says they are now going to come after you personally. But they now have their enemy, which you must hate as well. You must hate Russia. They now have their villain that everything will be blamed upon in order to escape your anger, to escape your blame. But the technocracy will get what they want. The end of privacy, digital currency, the new digital age, digital feudal communities. Also the end of worldwide connection and communication, at least that worldwide communication that was initiated by you with supposed privacy. And he says, those that do this will be the only ones with privacy and secrecy, but your world will be turned upside down. But if you're considered an enemy of the regime, even if you are squeaky clean, you will be made out to be worse than Hunter Biden. Meanwhile, all those on the progressive left will be revealed to be Puritans. All of our digital financial transfers will be interrupted. All of our systems of communication will be interrupted. Travel will be halted. Feudal, local, digital communities will be their answer. And it will all be blamed on Russia, but it won't be Russia. It will be our new society 2.0, the tech companies and service providers themselves, the lords of AI, the new masters of the universe. And then this enviral, communal, fascist new world order will begin to assert itself. But there's another reason why this has to happen now. And, and to me, this is the plausible part. This is why I'm like, ooh, I hope he's wrong, but this actually sounds plausible. He says there is no way, even with all the cheating and scheming, that the DNC and Rhino Republicans can hold on to the House and Senate in 2022. And there's no way that they can hold on to the presidency in 2024. So it's now they must begin to introduce a new world order, a new world religion, and to live in this order of the world, a new version of humanity is necessary. A new, obedient humanity that will live in their hyper-real semacrilla that will be governed by their AI God. An omnipresent, omniscient God who will know when you're sleeping, who will know when you're awake, who will know when you've been bad or good, so you better be good for goodness sake. So is there anything you can do about all this right now? His answer is yes. Share threads like this and information that will help everybody understand what is happening and who is behind the disruption of civilization. But he warns, we don't have long. It is the desire of those that wish to rule us to end our ability to, as a free community, practice and apply the scientific method to what's happening around us. So now is our opportunity. And he says, I would suggest sharing the following. It's actually a speech he gave in London back in 2019. And yes, he says, we must win. Again, this is Michael O'Fallon. His speech, by the way, is called After Light, Darkness. All right, I know. We're going to break here on a pretty dark note. We'll come back and shine some sunshine in your direction. But if this was going on, would you want to know about it or would you rather just be taken by surprise? This 
is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I want to give a shout out here to HSLAmmo.com. I love the shooting sports, uh, not just because I think they represent, you know, one of the best aspects of a free society, but let's face it, there is just something that is supremely satisfying about attaining and maintaining the skill at arms. It gives you the confidence to know that, uh, you know what, in the worst case scenario, I could take care of myself. It's also a lot of fun. Thomas Jefferson was actually a fan. He says, you know, as far as exercise goes, yes, there are many ways you can do it. But he says, I, I, I advise the gun as, as one of the great things to go to the field, to walk, to, to be able to shoot, to, to be able to hit what you're shooting at. It's a great thing, but it takes ammo in order to do that. So when you need to, to purchase ammo, when you need to stock up on ammo, think of HSLAmmo.com. Talk to my friend Spencer Worthington. Let him uh, keep you well-stocked with the tools of freedom and also the tools of recreation pertaining to the shooting sports. Never underestimate the uh, power of a good myth to keep people from noticing things they're not supposed to notice. I've got a couple of articles today from the the Z-Man. I'm just going to share one in this hour. This is uh, today's myth-making. And if you are currently obsessed or marinating in foreign policy stuff, I'm just going to warn you right up front. This one is probably going to sting. So um, you, you may find some things that are disagreeable. Please don't take this as, you know, this is showing you how stupid and evil you are. But there's so much psychological manipulation going on right now. Um, if you if you just were to look at the propaganda that is has just been blasted at us in the last month over the Russia-Ukraine conflict, it seriously is enough to make you start questioning the, the version of every single war that we have ever learned about. In fact, it actually makes you question a lot of what we've been taught about history. Because it's clear that, uh, you know, the, the court historians are the ones who get to tell the tale. And it seems they always tell the tale in a way that favors whoever's in power at the moment. So the Z-Man says a recurring theme in the American telling of history is that the bad guys do bad things for no reason at all. The general plot is that things were going along just fine, and then all of a sudden, for no reason at all, the bad guys started doing bad things. Inevitably, the good guys, which will always be the Americans, were forced to break away from minding their own business to save the world from badness. Now, the Great War was probably the first run at this form of myth-making. According to legend, America was trying hard to stay out of the war in Europe. Then, for no reason at all, those very bad Germans started preying on American ships. Finally, those evil Germans sunk a perfectly innocent passenger ship called the Lusitania. Now, the fact it was stuffed with munitions is conveniently omitted from the tale. And, of course, the Second World War is the full expression of this myth. In the Pacific, the great yellow menace decided out of the blue to attack Hawaii. America was at peace, and for no reason at all, the Japs attacked Pearl Harbor. In Europe, America's peace plan, created by Woodrow Wilson, was working perfectly. But then, for no reason at all, those very bad Germans declared war on the world. So the important elements of the story are always the same. America is the innocent bystander, doing its best to mind its own business. The villain is not the aggressor, not just the aggressor, but they also have no justification for their actions. Whatever reasons they have are dismissed as irrational or evil. 
And the final element is that America must reluctantly swing into action to save the world from the bad guys. Now, the Z-Man says this sort of stuff makes sense after success. The winners get to tell the story of their victory, and that always means myth-making. The only example we have of the winner declaring themselves the villain and the loser being cast as the morally superior party is colonialism. In America, that means the natives are the innocents and the paleface is the bad guy. This tale, however, is not written by the actual victors in the fight, but the winners in the 20th century culture war. So this now standard form of American myth-making is not just a post-hoc justification, but justification for future action. The Crusades against Islam were framed the same way by the neocons running foreign policy. Instead of myth-making to explain past action, it's myth-making to justify one of their schemes. America must reluctantly attack some country in order to be in order to avoid being forced to do it later. In their booklet, The War Over Iraq, Saddam's Tyranny and America's Mission, Bill Kristol and Larry Kagan used this exact framing to argue for the invasion of Iraq in the second Bush administration. Preemption is the claim that it's morally justified to attack another country if it can be argued that the target country could one day be a threat to American interests or the interests of American allies. Now, the Z-Man says it's fair to say the entire crusade against Islam was framed as a reaction by America to actors suddenly doing things for no reason at all. Saudi terrorists flew planes into the World Trade Center for no reason at all. So America reluctantly attacked and occupied Afghanistan. Saddam could possibly have thought about getting nukes for no reason at all. So America invaded Iraq and deposed the ruling regime. Now, the same narrative was ready for Iran, but the clock ran out on the Bush administration. Now we're seeing the same arguments with regards to Ukraine. America is being dragged into this conflict against its will because Russia, for no reason at all, has invaded the sacred lands of Ukraine. Members of Congress are being marched out in front of the cameras by their neocon handlers to tell us we have no choice but to risk nuclear annihilation over Ukraine. Now, of course, there's never any mention of the endless meddling by Washington or the meddling in the other former Soviet republics on the Russian border. According to the myth, America has been minding its own business, and for no reason at all, the Russians launched this bloody war against innocent civilians. Even if they have a reason, it's Russian disinformation, and only Putin puppets believe it. Now, it's clear from the massive public relations campaign put on by the American media that they were sure the old myth of America would work again. Everyone dutifully started chanting Kiev and donned the colors of Ukraine. The big social media platforms swung into action to suppress dissent. Everyone assumed that this was going to work, and the public would rush to support a war with Russia. Now, he says the fact that this has not happened, despite the bombardment from the mass media, suggests that the myth of America as a reluctant warrior has run out of road. Most Americans are willing to accept Ukraine as the victim and Russia as the aggressor, but they draw the line at acting on it. Even the mouth breathers who consume conservative talk radio sorry guys, that's a Z-man saying that, have started to question the flag-waving. At the end of the Cold War, he says the hope was that America could go back to being a normal country again instead of the savior of the world. Instead, it was a generation of pointless wars of choice cooked up by neoconservative nutters with an ancient grudge against humanity. Like a drug-resistant virus, they've infested the foreign policy establishment leading from one disaster to one disaster rather after another. And he says their final act may very well be destroying America's image of itself as a positive force in the world. 
Now, that will be a difficult thing for people to accept, especially the older generations. But it will be a small price to pay if it means the removal of this carbuncle from the face of the country. If humiliation in Ukraine means America turns back to normalcy, then he says the end of that myth will be worth it. No, I get it. That's, that's a pretty bitter pill. And you're probably not very happy with me for, for offering it up. It's not just a bitter pill. It's a big red pill. 500 milligrams at least. Now, I got red pilled in the run-up to the Iraq War. The second one. <laughs> the one in, in 2003, which, by the way, I believe we just barely passed the uh, anniversary of that war uh, just a couple of days ago. I could see very clearly that uh, the American foreign policy establishment, spurred on by the uh, center or the uh, Project for a New American Century, sorry, PNAC, they had wanted to go in there and depose Saddam and take over Iraq you know, for a long, long time, they just needed some kind of emotional leverage. Well, 9-11 provided the leverage. The fear and the anger and the outrage that followed those attacks on September 11th, I mean, they were enough to justify a lot of people putting aside their rationality for a moment and just, look, we got to take care of the threat. The whole world is a dangerous place. And, of course, there was just the anger. Somebody's got to pay. And no matter what conditions were placed on Saddam Hussein, who, by the way, I don't believe was a good person in any sense of the word. No matter what the conditions were, if he met the conditions that were were handed down from U.S. foreign policy demands, then, uh, well, you know, they just moved the goalpost. Well, now do this. Now do that. There was no way that that invasion was going to be avoided. And when I recognized that, uh, my gosh, this, this conservative president, this president, you know, W, who's going to sit there and guard our Constitution and make sure that we don't have to suffer like we did under Bill Clinton, he was in many ways worse than Bill Clinton because he was willing to take the nation to war and sacrifice precious American lives as well as treasure over a threat that never, a threat from, from a perceived threat from a country that had never materially harmed the United States. Pretty sickening stuff. What do you do in a case like that? I guess you try to keep your eyes open. And above all, know exactly where your morals are. Very important that you know where you stand. This is The Brian Hyde Show. trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. This is a gathering place for wrong thinkers of every stripe. Whether you are experienced in such matters or you're just testing the waters for the first time. If you are serious about owning your own mind and your own worldview, pull up a chair. I think you're going to find courage and you're going to find camaraderie here among your fellow wrong thinkers. 
Not because you're waiting to be told what to think, but because you are looking for good, credible, principled information from which you can draw your own conclusions. I take no offense if you disagree with what I say. You know, that's I'm, I'm strange this way, but my philosophy doesn't require other people to agree with me. Now, that being said, sometimes you're going to run up against some hard truths. I find them hard as well, but I think it's better to face those hard truths than it is to try to pretend that everything's great. And, you know, if we just vote harder and vote smarter, we're going to, you know, figure our way out of this. I think the solutions are going to start a lot closer to home, like within your heart and my heart and within our homes and within our communities before we ever see anything change at a substantive level, you know, in in the big picture. This program is brought to you by sponsors like GovernYourCrypto.com, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, LifesavingFood.com, MonticelloCollege.org, SewingAndQuiltingCenter.com, and HSLAmmo.com. All right, I'm going to just uh, go ahead and tiptoe on out into the minefield here, but I, I want to ask you, why do the vaccinated want a war with Russia while the unvaccinated don't? I know. That, I, I saw this article. Actually, I've seen a couple of different articles on this the last few days, and I've just been absolutely blown away. And I'm going to take you back to the Z-Man as well as I've got another source that I'm going to share on this matter. But there's a story out of Canada that shows a very interesting correlation between those who've had three or more COVID vaccinations and those who most strongly support war against Russia. This is a post from the Z-Man called The Hive Mind. And he says, one of the transcendent features of left-wing people, regardless of time and place, is their complete lack of self-awareness. The great blind spot for all left-wing people is the reflection in the mirror. They're incapable of seeing themselves other than as the hero in a great struggle. Now, just as an aside, social justice warriors, think about that. The woke, they're brilliant at recognizing injustice everywhere except the injustices they are engaged in at that moment. So this is, I think, a valid observation on the part of the Z-Man. And he says this story out of Canada about the correlation between COVID-loving and Putin-hating is a great example. The left thinks it confirms their righteous hatred of their enemy, but it merely confirms their lack of self-awareness. According to the story, unvaccinated Canadians are about 12 times more likely than those who received three doses to believe Vladimir Putin's invasion of, of, uh, of Ukraine was justified, according to a new survey taken by national polling firm Ecos. Now, polling is a dodgy business, he says. So this could be a fake poll designed to titillate the far left. But the fact that such a scenario is possible, however, is more proof of the general thesis about the far left's lack of self-awareness. So there are two ideas advanced in the coverage of this poll. One is that the unvaccinated are immoral, so it stands to reason that they support the evil Hitler guy. The left all over the West has been fixated on the vaccine as a moral signifier. They rushed to be the first to prove their piety within the COVID cult, and they rushed to condemn the vaccine skeptics as ignorant hooligans. The left would have embraced face tattoos for the vaccinated if it was possible, if it was an option, rather. That was something else that turned up in places with vaccine mandates. There was some suggestion that the unvaccinated be forced to wear armbands, but there were two problems with that plan. One is the obvious link to some unfortunate events that occurred in the last century. The other is the left instinctively feared the armband would become a moral signifier for their enemies. 
the unvaccinated would use it to show they are the star-bellied sneeches of this age. Now, the other idea advancing in this story is the claim that the people who did not want the vaccine are now pushing Russian disinformation about the war. The whole disinformation theme has two aspects for the hive-minded. One is the moral claim, but the other is ignorance. You see, those who are not repeating the latest talking points from the hive leaders are stupid and ignorant, which is why they succumb to the disinformation campaigns from the current devils. Now, the Z-Man says again, the poll and media coverage have that just-so story feel that's popular with the far left, so skepticism is the right position here. The polling companies are extremely cynical, as befits people who make a living serving sociopaths. <laughs> That's a brilliant line. They are perfectly willing and able to feed nonsense to the true believers because that's how they make a lot of money. The customer's always right, and their customers are the weird identity cult that's gripped the managerial class. So here's an example. I saw it almost immediately within days of the invasion, people supporting it, and some quite stridently said Timothy Caulfield, a Canada Research Chair in Health Law and Policy at the University of Alberta, who has studied the rise and spread of conspiracy theories. It was pro-Russia, pro-Putin. It was the same kind of dogmatic language you heard from the anti-vaxxers about the alleged claims associated with vaccines. And it was almost immediate, and it was from the same crowd. End quote. Now, the Z-Man says, this is a guy who rushed to get the Ukraine lapel pin and immediately started saying Kiev instead of Kiev while not being able to locate Ukraine on a map. One day, normal people are seeing their favorite news presenters discussing the latest pop stars, and the next day, those news presenters are part of a chorus singing the praises of a place called Ukraine. What we have seen from the managerial class over Ukraine is the definition of dogmatic. Now, of course, this is that lack of self-awareness that we expect from the left. People engage in left-wing politics for the same reason they join UFO cults. They hate themselves, so they look to swap their hated sense of self for the identity of a group. The primary driver is self-loathing. In the case of the managerial class, the perceived status that's awarded to the believer is an important bonus. The true believer loses herself in the identity of the group and gets likes from higher-status people. Now, there's another factor to the appeal of this stuff. People attracted to left-wing politics tend to have disorderly minds, and the simplicity of left-wing political framing provides needed structure. That's why it's not unusual to see a highly credentialed left-wing person who's useless independently. They took to the structure of school because they needed it. They did not learn anything they could apply on their own because that was never the point of education for them. Now, as far as the unvaccinated, the unclean, and the pro-Putin stuff... This is a lot like the other boogeymen that have haunted the left. Few people in the West are genuinely pro-Putin or pro-Russian with regards to the war in Ukraine. There are those prudently skeptical of the chanting from the usual suspects and those opposed to getting involved in the war. Some online are mocking the dogmatism of the left with over-the-top cartoonish Russia support. And this is reflected in the poll. 70% of the unvaccinated were honest enough to say they do not have an opinion on Ukraine. Only 5% of the true believers offered no opinion. Now remember, these are the same people who thought ornamental face gear scared away COVID spirits. They still think closing bars and restaurants magically prevents COVID. They are the people who believe what they are told and faithfully point and hiss at those who are not easily convinced. Note that the poll compares the self-described unvaccinated with those who are maximally vaccinated. Now, the Z-Man says the fact that they left out the reluctantly vaccinated and the compulsory vaccinated is telling. 
most likely those results do not fit the narrative the poll is intended to support. Most people took the vaccine out of necessity, their doctor recommended it, or they hoped it would put the charade to an end. The genuinely enthusiastic for vaccines are a small subset of the population. So he says the reaction by the left to the war in Ukraine is just another reminder that it's impossible to constructively engage with true believers. Deeply religious people can usually understand why you do not share their faith. They're faithful, but they're not unaware of themselves. The left is a different breed of believer. They do not seek salvation from the world. They seek salvation from themselves. This is why they obsess over the latest enemies of their cause. That is their salvation. Now, I don't know if you agree or disagree with what the Z-Man is pointing out here. But to me, this rings pretty true. And this is one of the reasons why I really strive not to be enemy-driven in my approach. Well, Brian, but you're talking about uh, the vaccinated and stuff. That's true. I'm talking about a trend here. But notice, I'm not pointing at individuals and saying, this is your enemy. This is the person. Hate them. You know, I'm not trying to stir up the two minutes hate. What I'm trying to do is stir up something much more dangerous. Awareness that would lead you to draw the line and say, no, I'm not going to go along with that. That's something that the people who are working and the systems that are working to rule you absolutely cannot countenance. This is why social media has has united and, and, you know, closed the ranks to try to punish and to limit dissent as much as possible. It's okay to disagree, but not with them. Dissent cannot be allowed, which makes you really wonder, okay, are they trying to protect me or are they trying to protect something else? All I know is the truth matters enough. If you have to go looking for it, do it, even if it's hard truth. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Our program is brought to you by Sewing and Quilting Center, where the finest quilters and sewers and, how do you say, embroiderers? (laughs) Did I just make up a word? This is where they go to get their machines, to get their training, to get their supplies, and, of course, to get their machines serviced long after the sale. It's located in St. George, Utah, and definitely the place to go if you are looking for comprehensive sewing and quilting needs. Everything. It's right there. You can even browse their online store, sewingandquiltingcenter.com. Easy to find. You can visit them at 779 South Bluff Street if you're in St. George, Utah. This is a wonderful family-owned business, and it's there to help you get the most out of either your sewing machine, your serger, your embroidery machine, your long-arm quilter. I know it's a foreign language for some, but uh, the people who know really understand. These these are extremely useful tools. And Sewing and Quilting Center is there to get them uh, right there to where you can use them and train you how to use them and keep them running long after you bought them. So I want to follow up a little bit more on this idea of do the vaccinated want war with Russia while the unvaccinated don't. And this, uh, this poll, this story out of Canada... It, it really has me wondering, and, and I know we're, we're painting in pretty broad stripes here, so um, I, I don't want to try to pretend that this is very precise, it's very scientific, and therefore, you know, you better trust every bit of it. 
But as an overall trend, just look at the people you know who resisted all of the pressure and all of the coercion to get the jab. Would you say that they are more uh, dogmatic in their thinking or are they more independent in their thinking? I know I would definitely say more independent, but then again, that's, that's the group that I identify with. Well, why didn't you get the jab? Because upon careful consideration, it appeared to me that there were way too many people or institutions that were trying to force me to do it. And without my informed consent, that ain't going to happen, sunshine. So I decided not to. But look at how the stakes, you know, were gradually raised. Hey, first we're going to bribe you. Do the right thing. I mean, even today, you know, I mean, Hillary Clinton just yesterday talked about, well, I've been diagnosed with COVID. Well, the symptoms are thankfully mild, and that's because I'm vaccinated and boosted. But I urge everybody to go get the same shots that didn't prevent me from getting COVID, but go get them. And there are people who, who strongly resonate with that. And the ones who were wishing death on the unvaccinated seemed to me to be quite dogmatic. So I could see that possibly they would be more dogmatic in matters, matters like uh, Russia versus Ukraine. What are the talking points? Okay, I'll chant in unison. Sure, let's go. Here's an article from Mark Crispin Miller. He says they've been trying from the start of this long global nightmare to equate compliance with benevolence. Throughout 2020, they told us inescapably that putting on a mask or two or three made you a good person. Wearing is caring. And then throughout 2021, they told us inescapably that vaccination was, to quote the horrible Bergoglio, an act of love. So that the kindliest and most considerate of us were those who'd had as many jabs as possible. Now, conversely, he says they portrayed the anti-maskers as a danger to us all, not just because they truly kill us or at least kill grandma with their fatal exhalations, but on top of that, because of their combustible far-right hostility to anyone, bus drivers, security guards who dared tell them what to do. The propaganda fostering that canard then took to casting anti-vaxxers as hideously selfish animals, utterly indifferent to the huge imaginary risk they posed to those who did get jabbed. A claim as obviously false as it was and is scientifically absurd. Now, Mark Crispin Miller says, I call it obviously false because outside the fever dream reported daily by the media, it's always been the other way around. All along, it's been the maskers who've readily abused the anti-maskers. And then it was the vaccinated who chastised, or worse, those choosing, for whatever reason, not to get injected. And of course, it was the latter, not the former, who, while getting pelted with such sanctimonious denunciation, have also been excluded, isolated, silenced, censored, fired, delicensed, fined, even jailed, or involuntarily committed, either for refusing to get jabbed or for merely questioning the wisdom or consequences of the vaccination program. And then we've also heard, and some of us have seen, a certain darkening of personality among the vaccinated, or some of them. A marked new nastiness, intolerance, explosiveness, as if those vaccines were laced with collar or its nanotechnological equivalent. Mark Crispin Miller says, I for one have been attacked insanely out of nowhere by the recently injected, and others have reported the same thing. That history of nastiness against the noncompliant is the context in which we should now check out and share these poll results, results from Canada. 
And this is this is where he links to a graphic of the chart. How should Canada respond to the Ukraine invasion? How the vaccinated, those who say they've received three or more shots, responded to that question versus those who said they were unvaccinated. And it really is a very fascinating night and day difference. Now, I'll go back to what I was talking about here earlier, and that is, you know, as far as the unvaccinated go, I never once over the last two years heard a person who was strongly on the side of remaining unvaccinated or at least not being vaccinated against their will. I never heard a single person there say, I hope you get COVID and die to the vaccinated. But I heard a surprising, a shocking number of people on the vaccinated side wish death and suffering on the the unvaccinated because they were non-compliant. I don't know what the, the quirk is of human nature that could explain that, but that's a dark part of humanity that it's it's been disturbing. I feel like I've lost some innocence in the last couple of years just to recognize that that mindset, that perverse streak of I must have you controlled or you must obey, you must bend the knee, exists a lot closer to home than most of us realized. I mean, I know households that have extreme tension over such things. Family members who refuse to go to one another's weddings or to to even visit on the holidays because, well, we would, but you didn't get the shot, so we really can't do that. Where does that come from? And by the way, I hope you understand, I'm not suggesting that therefore we ought to, you know, be throwing trash at those who behaved in that way as they're walking down the street. I'm really not about uh, vengeance. I don't think we need to return in kind the unkindness that's been directed at we, the unvaccinated. But I think we do need to take great care that we don't fall into a similar mindset or pattern of behavior. I don't want to control other people. And to some people, that actually makes me a very threatening figure. Well, why not? What makes you think you know better? <laughs> oh, hey, man, I'm, I'm the one saying I don't want to control you. I want you to make your own decisions. And in return, all I'm asking is you extend that same courtesy to me. But they won't. And it's not everybody, okay? It's not everybody who mildly disagrees with me. Well, you must be some kind of a control freak. Thankfully, the control freaks, like sociopaths in a society, are relatively rare, but they do exist. And until you encounter one, you probably are inclined to believe, well, there aren't really people like that. But then you encounter somebody who just gets that contact high from, you know, either from being in the presence of authority or exercising some opposed some supposed authority over other people. And you come to see that, oh, my gosh, they are real <laughs> and, and, and they're as unpleasant as, as I imagined they would be. Again, this is not about uh, setting you up with enemies to go knock down. But rather, this is a warning, and, and I'm speaking primarily to myself. Be aware of this behavior. Be aware of this aspect of human nature. And then keep some restraint on yourself and on your emotions so that you don't engage in it yourself. I know it's easier said than done, especially when somebody treats you with unkindness. The first time somebody yelled at me as I was in the grocery store, hey, where's your mask? I was surprised how quickly I had a four-letter word ready to, to say to them. I didn't say it. 
but it was right there, and I wanted to. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I want to thank the great sponsors who make this program possible, including Heather Turner and her team at Patriot Home Mortgage. Now, we actually just went through the pre-qualification process with Heather and her team, and I just want to tell you from firsthand experience, holy cow, this can be a complicated thing, but she made it so easy for us. She, she has decades of experience in the lending industry. It's very clear. She knows what's going on. She knows what the lenders need. She understands what the borrowers need. And here's why this is important. Timing is everything. When you find the home of your dreams, your financing has to be squared away. Look, not only because there's a very competitive real estate market, that's true, but it's also because um, the interest rates are slowly starting to creep back up, and that makes a difference. So if you want to get the loan you need at the best rates possible, I strongly recommend anyone listening within the state of Utah or the state of Idaho, contact the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. You can call her at 435-703-4522. If you're in St. George, just swing by her office at 619 South Bluff Street. Heather's NMLS ID is 715386, and Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender. I sometimes wonder how many people recognize just how serious the people are who are trying to eliminate free speech in order to protect us from misinformation. I know it's kind of taking place on the periphery, and so maybe it's not apparent. But you look at all the the structures and the uh, apparatus that have been put in place to protect us from unapproved points of view. Are there more or less than there were two years ago at this time? Come on, you know the answer. It's, it's it, exponentially more. And now the good citizen, Substack, is warning that the Internet is next. The war on truth and the race toward tyranny across the West. The good citizen says the famous phrase about truth is the first casualty of war is everywhere these days, if only because people recognize the truth is often nowhere. Now, there were variations on this saying, and this this one on populism is appropriate, given the past decade of rising animosity to elites and global management. It's from Theodore Dalrymple. Truth is not the first casualty of war alone. It is the first casualty of populism. Now, you've heard the term, if it's free, you are the product. Well, That's always been a quaint yet silly advertising slogan for our collective malaise with our digital world. The implication being, if it's free, you will be paying for it in many other ways that you cannot see. A more appropriate and honest slogan would be, you are and always have been the target. Your body, your mind, your mental state, your political beliefs, your private and public habits, your DNA, the past two years, and now your bank accounts are ideological and philanthropic associations are being targeted by Western governments for lists, censorship, seizure, and freezing out from participation in society unless you submit and obey forever. Now, that might seem a little bit scary, but I think the point here is well taken. What is happening in Canada will not stay in Canada. What's happening in Russia will not stay in Russia. What's happening in uh, Czechia, the U.S., or the U.K., rather, Slovakia, uh, Germany, Austria, France, Italy, New York, kindergartens, will not stay there. 
Tyranny may have arrived with a bioweapon wrapped in a pandemic PR campaign in the pretense of a deadly threat, but it's quickly mutating in virulence with a manufactured war designed to massage our lizard brains and pull our heartstrings. The Good Citizen says in order for tyranny to gain a permanent foothold across the West with future silent war fronts against humanity, it will require total control over information so that events can be framed through manufactured narratives. See, right now there are far too many leaks for the truth to escape and expose and undermine those prepared narratives. For tyranny to maneuver freely under benevolent disguises of safety and security, it must have the consent of the people which can only be artificially manufactured with lies and propaganda that are unvarnished by truth. Now, our present digital model is one of social and civilizational rot, which is why using the term social media is a fallacy that should be substituted with attention networks. The organizing principles of our digital model of monopolized attention networks is one that shadow governments and intel agencies adore and finance and partner with for new normal fascistic capitalism's mass surveillance and censorship circus. Now, the capitalism side of that equation no longer matters in a future of great resets and great narratives created by the gatekeepers of stakeholder capitalism, a controlled and engineered future of centralized technocratic power that must destroy the old models. For years, scholars have separated online mass surveillance from censorship, often ignoring the latter altogether, but the two are linked. You cannot have censorship without first having mass surveillance in order to know what is forbidden, even if determined by artificial intelligence programmed by humans with little intelligence on the consequences of censorship. The role of official state censors has always been pervasive in the post-printing press world to keep out information and ideas that were a threat to whatever centralized powers controlled the censors. We've only existed in a world without official censors for a very brief time. And we're naive to think, given the structure of information creation and consumption today, that it could last much longer. In fact, you could say that it no longer exists at all. The official censors are back. Their resurrection happened in the algorithmic shadows, at first quietly, but now in a torrid rush playing out for all to see, or not see if they're allowed to succeed. So from here, the good citizen goes through this brief trip to brief trip through time, that requires we see how we arrived at this present-day model of information dissemination and consumption. In other words, how we became targets. By visiting a recent book by George Gilder, Life After Google, The Fall of Big Data and the Rise of the Blockchain Economy, whose conclusion is going to need some updating, just given recent events in uh, Russia, Czechia, uh, Czechia um, Australia, Canada, Austria, ah, hell, I should just write the world. <laughs> So it starts with information systems. Over the course of three centuries, Gilder traces the concept of system of the world, a set of ideas that pervade a society's technology and institutions and inform its civilization. A system of the world necessarily combines science and commerce, religion and philosophy, economics and epistemology. For nearly a millennia, there was no system aside from ideas rooted in religion and superstition. The first system with roots in today's information system can be observed in 17th century Newtonian discoveries. So, the Newtonian system. Number one, Newtonian physics, rooted in calculus, made the physical world measurable and predictable. Number two, gold standard of money. 
rooted in scarcity and stability of a finite resource, made economic trade measurable and predictable. So measurable and predictable, these two attributes provided a foundation upon which scientific thought and technological progress blossomed. And while the economic stability fostered trustworthy commerce for the global British Empire for the next two centuries, including vast capital expansion of the Industrial Revolution. Now, by the late 19th and 20th centuries, the Newtonian system of measurable and stable, one universe, one money, one God, was in rapid decline. Creative mathematics displaced deterministic mathematics. Godel's refutation of deterministic logic and mathematics led to Turing's universal computing architecture, which showed that computers relied on oracles to inform their processes or give them instructions and judge their outputs, which led to Shannon's information theory of mathematics, which altered and advanced more than two dozen scientific fields and is manifested in today's system of the world represented by Google. Now, the idea of big data is that the previous slow, clumsy, step-by-step search for knowledge by human brains can be replaced if two conditions are met. All the data in the world can be compiled in a single place, and algorithms sufficiently comprehensive to analyze them can be written. Big data requires human labor, proffered for free thoughts, feelings, emotions, desires, as the product, the wellspring of big data. Humans are logic machines that are merely in service to tune algorithms that tune humans in return, a self-referential loop that resembles a confined technological determinism. The promise of artificial intelligence informing the algorithms will liberate humans from their own deficiencies by recognizing their future wants and desires before they do. And this is sold as a liberating process, as access to a frictionless world by the consumer. And Gilder argues that the reality is the exact opposite of liberating, as AI engineers reduce the human mind to a logical machine instead of a sensory organism. Here's why Gilder thinks it will fail. Quote, if the path to knowledge is the infinitely fast processing of all data, if the mind, that engine by which we pursue the truth of things, is simply a logic machine, then the combination of algorithm and data can produce one and only one result. Such a vision is not only deterministic, but ultimately dictatorial. End quote. Now, while the everything-free philosophy that sells this system to the people is simply a ruse that masks the hidden costs they pay. The zero price is apparently the most benign. It's most benign. Yet it will prove not only to be its most pernicious principle, but the fatal flaw that dooms Google itself. Pretty interesting stuff, huh? We'll come back to it just the other side of our break. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And just like that, we are back. Again, I've got a link to the article from The Good Citizen in my show notes. Strongly recommend if you haven't subscribed to this Substack, this is one I think you'll find worth your time really deep, thoughtful analysis of what's going on around us. 
and enough humor to make it uh, not only palatable, but actually fun to read. So we're talking about how the Internet is next in terms of controlling the flow of information in our lives. I mean, we have seen so many ways put together to stifle dissent, to keep us on track, to make sure we're all following the same narrative, we're all chanting in unison. It's, it's kind of scary to see this happen, especially where there's so much truth available to us. But there are also massive artificial intelligence guided systems that are doing their best to prevent us from getting too close to the truth. Now, the article goes on to say transformative declarations could contain rather implicit assumptions that are rendered collective truths through coercive acceptance or submission. In fact, Shoshana Zuboff argues in her book, The Age of Surveillance Capitalism, that declarations are inherently invasive because they impose new facts on the social world while their declarers devise ways to get others to agree to those facts. She argues the inauguration of surveillance capitalism ushers in a new reality through Google's alarming declarations that defined our age as an age of conquest. Have you heard these declarations before? Check this out. These are Google's six declarations. Number one, we claim human experience as raw material free for the taking. On the basis of this claim, we can ignore considerations of individuals' rights, interests, awareness, or comprehension. Number two, on the basis of our claim, we assert the right to take an individual's experience for translation into behavioral data. Number three, our right to take, based on our claim of free raw material, confers the right to own the behavioral data derived from human experience. Number four, our rights to take and to own confer the right to know what the data disclose. Number five, our rights to take, to own, and to know confer the right to decide how we use our knowledge. And number six, our rights to take, to own, to know, and to decide confer our rights to the conditions that preserve our rights to take, to own, to know, and to decide. You really need to look at the article yourself and and, and just see how this is structured. Human experience as raw material free for the taking. The Good Citizen says we can now clearly see the purpose of the Internet. Whatever it may have been before it was hijacked by central planners has now become one of manipulation and control of people. Now, you may have seen this quote in the uh, satirical Good Citizen pieces on Borgs. The purpose of the Internet was not to liberate information for society, but to isolate individuals into controlled information monopolies so their ideas, behaviors, and beliefs could be easily weaponized for the aims of a global technocracy. Then there's herding systems. We are quickly moving to a new system, and it's not what Gilder predicted in blockchain and decentralized networks. The rise of a handful of monopolies to herd the masses into controlled information systems for attention, labor extraction, and psychological operations is overwhelming. At the core of this information hijacking is the ultimate technocratic weapon in Google Search, an abstract tool with intentionally obscure engineering, where billions of people are deliberately herded daily for reinforced manipulation and control. It's such a powerful tool of deception on a global scale, nothing has ever come close to the level of damage it can wield against humanity in the wrong hands. Rendering entire populations walking, swiping truth machines and reality affirmers in its service. Their human experiences, raw material for the taking. This is the paradigm that has given us Google and Facebook and Twitter, where you and your mind are the target for control, mass censorship, mass surveillance. 
Corporate state collusion to rig content online to sway elections, manipulate behavior, and turn the West into the stinking, keeled-over crap house it's become. If you haven't connected these digital tyrannies to the totalitarian subjugation in progress across the West, well, then you're missing the bigger picture. If you think mass formation is even remotely possible without this system, you're deluded. Now, there are solutions. Here's the good news. Substack is different. Substack helps fix this. Substack wants to turn that information distribution crap house right side up again and put in a composting toilet and air fresheners, and maybe one day we'll move to indoor plumbing again. There's no censorship here yet. Nobody's trying to manipulate you or control you. The subscription model avoids all that, but it requires some of us to get on our knees and help lift that crap house out of the mud. Now, the deep state goons are coming for the dissenters. The clock may be ticking on Substack faster than we thought because we know it's ticking on all information. How do we know? They've told us. This is state intimidation. These are spooks yelling boo in the black suits, hiding behind ominous aviators. Management's information mafia will show up at Substack's offices one day soon and make them an offer they can't refuse. By the way, the good citizen actually has a uh, backup address on the day that happens, just so you know, it's in the article. In the future they're engineering, businesses are all expendable. The smaller and more localized, the more expendable they are. Destroying any that stand in the way of that future is a necessary sacrifice toward greater tyrannical ends. Society cannot be corralled and controlled into one ship without fixing these information leaks. And as long as the truth has a place to seep out, their ship will scuttle. They've quickly moved from censorious whack-a-mole on each platform to blanket censorship with the help of state actors across the West. And they're organizing their technocratic managers to oversee this next stage in digital narrative management. The Orwellian DNS Abuse Institute is currently developing a centralized abuse reporting tool. Misinformation will no longer be tolerated at the domain level. Snitchers will be encouraged to report harmful content and misinformation to the Klaus Schwab Ministry of Truths. It's called abuse reporting, and there is no legal recourse after the accusations are leveled. Any site that goes against management's current will be guilty of abuse or harmful content or Russian misinformation or whatever the threat du jour is when they flick the off switch. Accusations will not require evidence. Now, the EU and Germany, true to form, are way ahead on this, banning and blocking entire websites. It started with sites like Infowars, and now all Russian broadcasters are being shut down. The UK has an online safety bill in the works that will criminalize wrongthink under the same pretense that states always use to smash liberty. Safety. The attention networks have already become balkanized. Political tribes migrate to their preferred echo chambers, now designed to hold and monitor for appropriate lists. This is the plan. Censor and blacklist to divide the population to divergent platforms where they can be easily monitored and watched and eventually shut down altogether, like they did with Parler. Apple and Google will do their part with their application store monopolies. And like Substack, Google search alternatives DuckDuckGo and Brave will be considered threats to management as with every new blockchain or decentralized project in the works. DuckDuckGo already submitted to the censorious managers in the noble fight against misinformation and its deadly cousin Russian disinformation. Everything connected to networks is a threat because it can no longer be managed through a -a whack-a-mole system where the truth leaks, so they'll be coming for it all soon enough when they come for the Internet itself. 
In fact, they're reaching for the mother of all information bombs in the form of cyber attacks. And, of course, they'll have Putin to blame for it. Brandon Smith of Alt Market recently opined of our globalist social engineers, quote, they need something that will enrage the American population, specifically conservatives. They need a crisis of epic proportions to lure us into an emotional response and the abandonment of logic. They also need a scapegoat disaster that they can use to lay the blame for the impending economic crisis. I predict this event will come in the form of a large-scale cyber attack, and the escalation of events suggests to me that they will try to implement such an attack in the near term, perhaps within the next couple of months and certainly before the year is over. This is not about Russia. It's not about Ukraine. The real war is between free peoples and the globalists. End quote. Now, Klaus Schwab has openly said there will be massive cyber attacks. By now, we should know that when the bathhouse Bond villain speaks, it's probably going to happen. Biden has confirmed that Russia will take the blame, even if the the attack is a false flag from the U.S. shadow government. So when the cyber attacks start, they'll be in pieces, a little blackout here, another one over there. They'll be regional, then national, then global. They've been rehearsing for years with top down with down detectors tripping in regional places. There will be no exceptions made for information dissidents who do not eagerly embrace official narratives. So what can we do? Well, unfortunately, this question should have been asked a decade ago. And all resources not tied to government venture capital programs, the ones that funded Facebook and Google, should have been answering the call. People thought they were with blockchain and decentralized networks. However, those can all be captured and demolished by governments, if not through legal means, then through market destruction. Now, there's promise in blockchain for currencies to counter central bank tyranny, but it doesn't solve the issues of privacy and autonomy. The entire system needs to be abandoned for something completely resistant to bad actors and central powers and built from the bottom out with the people building it upwards. There's much more to this article, and I would suggest click on the link, read it for yourself. You will find it in my show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. If you haven't subscribed, look down there at the bottom of the page. There's the subscription button. This is The Brian Hyde Show.